A few years ago, I was reading through 1 Corinthians again, probably read it 100, 200 times, and I'm telling you, these first, 10, first 9, 10 verses just leaped off the page at me, and I saw something I had never seen before. Now help me out. What do we know about the church at Corinth? What do we know about their spiritual condition? Now, this is participation time, okay? Give me some one-word descriptions of the spiritual condition of the church at Corinth. One-word descriptions of the spiritual condition. Carnal. Backslidden. Immature. Worldly. Wicked. Um, fighting. They were fighting with each other. I'm Paul. I'm Apollos and all that. Doesn't that sound like some Baptist churches you've known of? I mean, this church at Corinth was in a mess. I mean, Paul later on begins listing their sin. And any sin you can imagine was present in the church at Corinth, right? And, And that's the reason why Paul wrote this book. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at the first few verses of this, cha- of this book. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are, what? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Wow. Really? That is how Paul chose to begin his address to a carnal, backslidden, worldly, fighting church. So I want to share some things with you. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul reminds them that they are sanctified in position. You taking notes? They are sanctified in position. That's verse 2. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, usually when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the progressive nature of sanctification. And that means that today I am to be more like Christ than I was yesterday, and tomorrow I am to be more like Christ than I was today. We are progressing in our sanctification. But there is also the positional aspect of sanctification, whereby we understand that when we get saved, when we when we accept Christ as Savior, we are declared to be righteous. We are declared to be just. We have a position in heavenly places in Christ Jesus simply because of what He has done for us. Not because of anything we have done for Him, but because of what He has done for us. Paul here is reminding this church at Corinth that they are sanctified in position. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, 
Give me some one-word descriptions of who and what you are in Christ. All right? Who and what you are in Christ. One-word descriptions. Saved. Sanctified. We just read that. What? Satisfied. Blessed. Secure. Forgiven. How about holy? Yeah, in Christ, I am holy. How about righteous? In Christ, I have been declared to be righteous. In fact, the Bible tells me that the very righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. Now, what does that big word imputed mean? Here's the best way I know to explain it. We have a friend over in Newark. His name is Tom Matthews. Tom, I believe, is one of the oldest living multiple organ transplant recipients in the entire United States. He has two lungs, a kidney, and I think one other organ. His lungs he's had for over 25 years. Very unusual. Well, he has had a transplant. In fact, he's had several transplants. Now, a transplant is where you take a living organism from one person. It was a living part of their body. You take it out of them. You transplant it into the recipient. And it actually literally becomes a living part of their body. Okay? That is a transplant. On the other hand, we have implants. My sister, who died about about four years ago now, had a pacemaker. She had some heart issues, and she had a pacemaker. Well, they took a foreign piece of metal and plastic and who knows what else, and they opened up her skin, and they put it just under the skin, ran some wires into her heart, closed it up. You couldn't see it. It was there in her body, but it never became a part of her body. It was always a foreign object. It was a transplant, not, or pardon me, it was an implant, not a transplant. The word impute, the Greek word that has been translated impute or imputation literally means to transplant. In other words, the righteousness of Christ, part of his very nature, was miraculously, supernaturally put into us at the time of our new birth and became a part of us. And God the Father looks at us and says, you are righteous because of Jesus. Okay. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is reminding these reprobate backslidden, immature, carnal believers at the church of Corinth, hey, you have forgotten something. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. He gave you new birth. He gave you a new life. He gave you a new nature. And you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, when we look at this, we understand that we have our condition and we have our position, okay? What is our condition? Well, our condition is how we're doing right now. 
how we are applying and appropriating the promises of God and the principles of Scripture right now. Now, how often can your condition change? Moment by moment. You know, you can pull into the parking lot Sunday morning. Man, I just can't wait to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am just so glad to be at church. And you're out there in the parking lot, and you get your Bible and everything, you start walking into church, and somebody in the parking lot doesn't speak to you. Did you see that? They walked right by me and didn't even talk to me. And after all I've done for her, she just ignored me. Can you believe that? I mean, your condition can change moment by moment because it deals with what people think about you, what people say to you, how you are feeling, how you are thinking. That is your condition. But then there's your position. Your position is what God has declared you to be because of the finished work of Christ. Now, how often does your position change? Never. You want an exciting Bible study? Go home this afternoon and look up the little phrase, in Christ. In Christ. There are either 27 or 28 different things in the New Testament that the Word of God tells you and me and us about who and what we are in Christ. All 27 or 28, I think it's 28, tell us something different about who and what we are in Christ, and they all describe our position. You gave me the one-word descriptions. Justified, holy, pure, sanctified, forgiven, powerful, and we could go on and on and on. Now, here's my question. If you were to meditate 24-7, just want to prove that I'm hip and cool, 24-7, all right? If you were to meditate 24 7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if you were to meditate all that time on your condition, would it ever change your position? Come on, think with me. If you were to meditate 24 hours a day, seven days a week on your condition, would it ever change your position? No, of course not. Now, If you were to sincerely begin meditating on your position, could it change your condition? So, what do you and I spend most of our time worrying about, thinking about, meditating on? Our position or our condition? Our condition. Duh! We spend all of our time thinking about our condition rather than focusing upon our position. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Their condition is the pits. Oh, and by the way, a couple chapters later, he nails them. Well, he does. I mean, he lists their sins. But before he ever gets to that, he reminds them of who they are in Christ. He reminds them of their position. Somehow in our fundamental churches, we often get that backwards. We spend all of our time talking about our condition and other people's condition rather than meditating upon our position. He reminds them that they are sanctified in position, but secondly, and i got to hurry, 
He reminds them that they are saintly in purpose. Saintly in purpose. Again, look at verse 2. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be saints. Now, that word saint is an interesting word. The Greek word is hagias. No, Pastor Tony, I didn't say hagendas. Pastor Tony was getting all excited. The Bible tells me I can have Hagendos. No, it's not Hagendos, it's Hagios. H A G I O S. Interesting word. Here's what it means the word Hagios could literally mean you take something very normal, very ordinary, something very average, and you transform it to a holy purpose. Okay? I. Uh, I do have a daily radio program, and I'm very thankful for it, but my real heart is the little ministry that God has given my wife and I. It's called Cross Power. If you want to check it out, our website is crosspower.net, and that's what we do almost every weekend. We travel and teach on the cross. We do marriage conferences and family conferences. So uh, one of the very first meetings that we had when we started Cross Power Ministries 16 years ago was up in northern Ohio in Richfield. Where was the old Coliseum where the Cavs used to play? That Richfield or Richmond? Richfield. Okay, that's where it was, Richfield. And it was a, a fairly new church that was in a storefront that used to be a restaurant. And uh, that Sunday morning, there were about 12 people there in the morning service, and the pastor had seven kids. And Joy and I, so do the math, okay? Really, really tiny church. And I noticed sitting on the front seats on each side were some old ratty, and I mean ratty, baskets. They were like woven baskets, and they were dirty, and they were filthy, and they were full of holes. Pretty smart, Pastor, though, because you couldn't put any change in. It would fall out. You had to put just dollar bills or, you know, dollar bills, you know. But anyway... They were sitting there on the front. It came time for the offering. The offering is a time of worship, right? I mean, isn't the offering... I mean, you give an offering here not just to keep the pastor in his brand new Lexus and the, you know, the home down in, in Miami. You give because that's part of your worship. So we're sitting there, and two of the pastor's kids come up and take those old ratty baskets... And the pastor prayed, and those old ratty, filled with whole baskets were all of a sudden transformed into instruments of worship, because that's what the offering is. And they passed them, and they were used as an instrument of worship. And I sat there, and I thought, that's what a saint is. A bunch of piles of dirt, because isn't that what we are? And yet, when we are saved, when we're born again, we are We are transformed into the temple of God. And we are transformed into instruments of worship of the God of the universe. That's what Paul is reminding these people at Corinth about. He says, not only are you sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified in position, you are also saintly in purpose. Here's what Paul is saying. You are saints, so start acting like it. You are saints, so start thinking like it. 
You are saints, so start talking like it. Start looking like saints and talking like saints and acting like saints because that is what God has called you to be. You know, there are some churches who say that you got to do all of these things in your life and two miracles have to be attributed to you and then some guy in a pointy hat declares that you are a saint. I don't mean that in disrespect, but the Word of God tells me that I am a saint. Your pastor is a saint. You could change the name of the church, St. Tony's Baptist Church. That's kind of a nice ring to it. All right. You, my brother and my sister, you are saints. God takes common, ordinary people and he transforms them into instruments of worship of the God of the universe. Wherever you go, whatever you do, don't ever forget that you are sanctified in Christ Jesus and you have been called to be saints. That's what Paul is reminding these folks. But also he tells them, he reminds them that they are sufficient in power. They are sufficient in power. Look at verse 3. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. There is no more powerful force on planet earth than the grace of God. And Paul is reminding these folks at Corinth in their spiritual mess that they have available to them all of the power of God. They have all of the grace of God available to them. Verse 5, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is telling them. You don't need anything else. You already possess the grace of God. You have all the knowledge you need. You have all the understanding you need. You have everything you need to grow in Jesus Christ. And that's the same for you. The Bible says that when you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God came into you and took up residence inside of you. Do you believe that? Can you say amen? You have the Spirit of God. The grace of God has been given to you. And Paul didn't have all of this. He had the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament. The people that he was writing to had the Old Testament. But they had just a letter from Paul. They didn't have the rest of the New Testament. And yet Paul is telling them, you've got everything you need. Well, if they had everything they need, what about us? We have all of the New Testament. I hear people all the time looking for the next seminar. I've got to find another book. I've got to go to another Bible study. They're always looking for something else, something else. Something. Folks, listen. Right now, right here, as you sit here, You possess spiritually everything you need to live a victorious Christian life. You just need to learn how to apply it and appropriate it on a daily basis. You don't need anything else. 
You need to apply what you have. And that is what Paul is reminding the saints in Corinth. Then finally, he reminds them that they are sealed in providence. They are sealed in providence. Look at verses 8 and 9. Who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I love verse 9. If you haven't underlined this, oh, please do. God is faithful. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes you're not. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, Paul is reminding the church at Corinth that God is at work in their lives. That God is going to pursue them. God is going to work in them until they become what God wants them to be if they would surrender. They are sealed by God's providence. God is pursuing them. He is telling them that when you need to be convicted, the Holy Spirit will convict you. When you need to be comforted, you will be comforted. God is at work. You must surrender. You must listen. You must learn. But He is at work in your life right now, right here. He is at work. Just about out of time, so let me end with this illustration. I heard this story several years ago about a a village in Italy. The city fathers were meeting, and they were kind of upset that they weren't getting any tourist trade. I mean, tourism is huge in Italy, and so many cities in Italy are famous for something. There's Venice, there's, there's Nice, of course, there's Rome, and so many other cities, and they're known for this, and they're known for this, and they're known for this, the Leaning Tower of Pisa and so forth, and they're saying, nobody ever comes to our town. So they're sitting around thinking what they could do, and One of the city fathers says, well, wait a minute. Remember the battle of so-and-so? And he mentions a battle that everyone in Italy would immediately recognize. It was one of the most famous battles in Italian history, and it had been fought right where their little city was established. But nobody knew that. I said, well, we got to get the word out that that's where this battle occurred. And people would come, well, how can we do that? One of the city fathers says, I know. Why don't we commission a world-famous sculptor to come and and sculpt a a memorial of that war, that battle? And because he's a world-famous sculptor, that will bring tourism. And because it would draw attention to the battle, that would draw tourism. And they said, that's great. Well, what would would we have him sculpt? And one of the men said, I know, a horse rising up in battle array, you know, battle stance. And so they all agreed. They began looking. They found a world-famous sculptor who was willing to do it. And then they decided to add excitement. They would have the sculptor actually do the work in the middle of the town square, right where the statue was going to stand. So one day a truck pulled up with a gigantic piece of marble, a big crane, lifted it off, put it right there in the city square. And the next morning, the world-famous sculptor showed up with his tools, hammers and chisels. And he looked at it, opened his bag, pulled out the biggest hammer, the biggest chisel, and began wailing away at that marble and huge chunks fell to the ground. And so the process began. Well, there was a man in this little village who became obsessed with watching the sculptor. 
He would come early in the morning, even before the sculptor would come, so that he would get his prime spot, and all day long he would watch every move that the sculptor would make. And he came every day, every day, every day, watched every stroke of the sculptor with his hammers and his chisels. Weeks turned into months. It was a long process, and finally, the horse was almost finished, and it was magnificent. Now the sculptor has a tiny little mallet and a tiny little chisel and he's finishing up some of the fine detail on the horse's eyes and he's just lightly tapping, just finishing. Well, this man who was obsessed with the process, he can't take it anymore. He comes up to the sculptor and he says, Sir, please, I know we're not supposed to bother you. I know we're not even supposed to talk to you, but I I can't take it anymore. I have watched almost every move that you have made, and I still don't understand how you do it. The sculptor said, what do you mean? He says, how do you take a big block of marble and create this magnificent horse? The sculptor laid aside his hammer and chisel and turned to the man and said, actually, it's quite easy. I get a big block of marble. I get my hammers and my chisels And I knock off everything that doesn't look like a horse. Isn't that the way it is with a sculpture? You don't add anything to a sculpture. You only take away, right? And you stop taking away when the image is exactly what you want it to be. You all know Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good. Quote it with me. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Everybody knows Romans 8, 28, but not everybody knows verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate. And we're not talking Calvinism here. For whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of of his son. In other words, every one of us has been predestined to be just like Jesus. To be sculpted into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, how does God do that? Romans 8:28. All things. That's why Romans 8:28 works because of the truth of verse 29. He brings all things into our life. Really good stuff. And we just say, God is so good. I'm just so blessed. I just love being a Christian. It's just wonderful. Well, God uses that to make us more like Jesus. But God also takes the really bad stuff. Where we are crushed and broken. Where we think we cannot live another day. God uses those things as well. You see, those are God's hammers and chisels to make you and me more like Jesus. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I have no idea what's going on in your family. My family's going through a very difficult time right now, just to be really honest with you. Just a heartbreaking time. But you see, God is using that to make me more like Jesus. We are sealed in God's providence. Nothing ever touches us that does not come through the hands of a sovereign God. Nothing is ever out of control. He is always in control. And whatever is going on in your life, God is using that to make you more like Jesus. 
God uses your husband as his hammer and chisel. God uses your wife as his hammer and chisel. God uses your kids as his hammer and chisel. God uses your health as his hammer and chisel. Because, my friend, we are sealed in God's providence.